intuition, I try to reserve it for the few moments where I have to deploy it. And so it started as a defensive thing. I had never been an investor before. I had run a couple of companies. After I ran the third one, I was shocked to discover there was a fourth, fifth, and sixth company out there. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian Evans podcast. I'm your host, Christian Evans, And guys, we have a very special guest on today. He is a former three-time CEO, an active and involved board member, an engaged process-oriented fund investment committee and fund advisory board member, and a cancer survivor. Now, I am so excited about having him on. He is currently the founder of Treehouse Capital. Now, we're going to dive into their thesis, their investment strategies, but he's been in the game for 23 and a half plus years now. So you think you should listen to him about his strategy, his paradigm, his philosophy, his principles, and his pillars and the way he thinks? 100%. That's the reason why we want to have him on our guest. Now, he's an extensive experience serving on and chairing public and private company boards, also serving as a fund advisor and investment committee member for a wide variety of investment funds from all different industries. That's the reason why it's so incredible to have him on experience this. Now, like I mentioned, he's also the chief executive officer of three technology companies, succeeding twice in generating superior investment returns for his shareholder and himself, and he also a massive failing once. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only Rob Midless. How you doing today, Rob? Hey, Christian. It's uh, great to be here. And thank you for that nice intro. I, we can hang up now. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, I am very serious. I am very excited about having this conversation. And what's interesting is you, you we were talking offline here real quickly. You were telling me about how your investment thesis has slightly adjusted uh, toward more in the impact, sustainability, and your passion is really you know, exceeding in that category. But before we dive into that, which is going to be fun, I want to ask you a little bit about kind of just the, the pivot points, right? During the 23 plus years you've been in the investor world, there's probably been a lot of learning experiences to say the least, right? And certain boundaries and systems and the way you look at things differently. Um, I'd love to just maybe at a 30,000 foot view, love to just unpack that journey. What has that looked like as an investor? Yeah. Um, well, and if I may, I'll go back 10, 12 years prior to that when I was running uh, a couple of companies um, in terms of pivot points and learning. Uh, you know, for me, um, I've, I've had the courage to invest in myself a lot. And I was lucky a few times it worked. I was like, yeah, unlucky a few times it didn't work. But early on, I didn't set out to be the CEO of anything. Um, I was a failed M&A attorney. I was a failed investment banker. And the first pivot point for me was to um, take a look at myself and decide I really wanted to invest in what I could put into something and trust that the outcomes would be rewarding. I had been organizing myself around the outcomes I wanted and that was getting me into activities I hated and therefore was terrible at. In any event, my first big pivot was to turn that around and, and join a company that ended up running that was near bankrupt or should have been. But it ended up working out and that gave me my first shift. And so, you know, focusing on inputs and trusting outputs is probably the first one. Over the 20 years of investing life after running a few companies, um, a billion and a half pivot points, uh, you know, learning how in the public markets in particular, what I think is less important than knowing what other people think and knowing when to agree and when to disagree. There's an art and a science to that. I've done that well and poorly. Um, on the private side, I've really learned to trust my instinct about people. When, when you're in with the right people, things just kind of work out. It might take longer than you'd like and, and maybe less than you'd like at the end, but they work out. And so lots of pivot points. I hope that's responsive to your question, uh, but a it lot is. of learning step of the way. Yeah, let's dive into this. And I find this very interesting. Um, I had a friend of mine and he said he invested into a company. And yes, he had an exit and it was very successful. However, though, it was it was strained relationships. It was difficult. And so he regretted it. It took way too much time, energy, anxiety, all that. And so he was like, is it worth it? I'm not sure at the end of the day. But I mean, still a nice little clean and a little bit of money. Rob, you mentioned about personality or like your relationships. Um when you're now looking back at all your experiences, all the people that you've invested, all the founders, how do you, what, what is your perspective? How do you look at that? What's your paradigm in regards to, uh, you know, finding the right winners? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and 
and everything's so circumstance defined for, for me when I launched myself as an investor for good reasons and others, <laughs> I only wanted to invest my own capital. I was fortunate to pool a little bit together from some early successes running some companies, but I didn't have enough capital to be, uh, my money wasn't important to anybody but me, right? And so to get deal flow, I understood that my business model was to add value first and deal flow would come from that. Um, it's my way of getting to the answer to your question about relationships because what I learned was I would only get invited to things if I could be the person that others really wanted to rely on, that I could be, that I could embrace and extend the executive team, that I could understand translating them to venture backers or other investors and back and forth. And, and so getting that right has been huge and I've gotten it wrong as much as right. And, and so what ends up resulting is when I don't trust my instincts about my fit with the people, and that could be because I'm limited, not, not them, but just trusting my instincts about my fit. When I didn't do that, I ended up getting anxiety and, and, and tension and probably causing my fair share of it. Sometimes those situations worked out financially, sometimes they didn't, but I regret every one of them that created that kind of agita in me and in others because it just wasn't worth the time. And time's the only commodity that's precious and rare. And so I've had to learn over time to be much more focused on where I fit. And that's evaluating myself as well as the other person involved too. You mentioned intuition and, you know, just that, that feeling, right? And I, I think it's interesting because I've heard that numerous times as I've talked to investors offline or online, and that's a big thing that they really rely on. Um, let me ask you, because you mentioned this, would you say now that you realize that and there is intuition and you're feeling that, whatever it is, whether it's a yes or no, and you just like, you got this feeling now do you tend to gravitate more toward that intuition? Like, hey, I, I, if you're feeling that, you're saying that, and like, hey, I'm going to go with this because I feel good uh, with, with this this energy. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's a question. It's the art and science of investing, right? That, that everybody who's engaged in investing at any level has to tackle. And they have to tackle it first by knowing themselves, which which is why it's so hard. How how well do any of us <laughs> you know, know ourselves, right? And um, I pursued this, I've been pursuing this topic all my life. I, I taught for 10 years at business schools at Berkeley and a little bit at Stanford and, and, and other grad schools and on the art and science of investing. And so for me, and I, I think for others, um, you want to be data-driven, you want to be metrics-driven, you got to be fact-driven, you got to be research-driven. And so I think the purpose of doing that is to isolate to the few and the rare when you have no clue, no definable metric, and that's when you deploy your judgment or your art form or your instinct. I think if you're applying your instinct ahead of doing that work, then, I mean, unless your instincts are perfect, unless you're the Hank Aaron of, of instincts or, or, the, or the Warren Buffett, I mean, great. But for the rest of us, I think you really do have to be very specific about when you're going to deploy that judgment and how you can deploy it. And, and try to make that as few and as limited as you can because there's so much other stuff that you've learned that's maybe fact-based or metric-based. So for me, I just try to be specific about am I making a 100% judgment or making a 2% judgment? Where, where am I? And, and then act on that basis. Well, the reason why I want to bring this up is because – you know, intuition and, and that, you know, instinct, it doesn't rely, it, it does not lie in the data and the logical brain. It lies in something else that's more of that emotional aspect. However, though, it's just so interesting because I have seen more investors mention that and they're like, they really, you know, almost 90%, they always follow their, their instinct and their intuition. I found that very interesting. And so yeah. to, to unpack this a little bit further, Rob, what yeah. do you do? on a daily basis or maybe a weekly basis to help you really, you know, heighten that intuition or that instinct to ensure, Hey, you know what am I seeing? Are my biases out of the way? Because knowing, right. like you mentioned, knowing your own self um, and saying, you know what, you know, you know, making sure that you have the right boundaries in place. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a lifelong journey, so uh, I'm no expert, but I love the topic. Um, uh, let me get a quick story from, uh, from baseball history. Uh, Cause I think it'll be illustrative. The great Frank Robinson, one of the immortals of the game and a wonderful person, uh, had a great sense of humor about himself. And when he became, apparently when he became a manager from a great Hall of Fame playing career, 
talked about one of his first experiences being a manager. I promise this will connect to what you're describing. And um, so he had a he had a, a a young player who came to him. He knew enough as a coach to say, "Look, I can't jump on somebody about how they're hitting or not hitting. They have to find me." And he was very excited because a young player came to him and said, "Hey, Skip, I you know I'm having trouble with the curveball. Can you help me?" Great, you know. So Frank Robinson gets in there and he tells this the story about himself and he he gets in the batter's box on a practice mound and and he tells the kid who's standing there, "All right, here's what you do. So what I want you to do is I want you to." I want you to see that ball, and then I want you to hit it. <laughs> and Robinson tells the story. He didn't realize how unhelpful that was until so he looked at this kid and said, Oh my lord, like really? So see, for the Frank Robinsons of the world, this question about instinct and training, you know, for them it's so intuitive. Their synapses are so world-class in these ways that they have to learn to unpack all of that to help others because it's natural to them, right? And so I've always taken insight from that because for me personally and for others, this question about instinct about others starts with your own knowledge of yourself. How do you learn? How do you like to learn? How do you react in stress? How do you like to react in stress? Because when you know those things about yourself, you can then apply a judgment to others about whether your instinct is resonating or not, right? Because it's a two-way street. This instinct is pitching and catching. This, it's a two-way thing. So for me, I try to stay, become a real active student of this topic, of this debate, how others do it from other fields. Um, I do an immense amount of reading on these topics and others. Um, I try to be as candid about myself, with myself as I can be. Um, and be as transparent about that with others as I, I think I know how to be. And then, you know, just have faith that, you know, doing my best over the long period will create rewards. And, and there's times when that's true, and I say I did that well. There are times when the results are terrible, and I, you know, lament everything I just told you. <laughs> and they go back to the drawing board. <laughs> I love that story, man. And I appreciate you just, you know, unpacking that. I think that's just where you just, you see the ball and you hit it. That's really what it comes down to. But <laughs> it, it, it is, it is very tough to unpack this. Now I want to ask, um, because when you're, when you have these tough conversations, because I think we all, and, and, and just in business and life and whatever, we always love this, you know, we're going to invest, you know, 50K, 100K, a million dollars, whatever into this, you know, founder and to maybe series A, series B, series C, whatever it may be. And we want to, you know, get some result afterwards. But there are some tough conversations. I know you have taken many advisory boards um, and, and you're very active in the, mm -hmm. the companies you invest with. And I'd love to just talk a little bit about, Rob, the way, first of all, you negotiate that to make sure that you do or you are part of the advisory board because you do want to be very active. Mm -hmm. And then two as well is having those – that science and that art of having those tough conversations with the, the C-suite and those uh, – and the, the founding team. Yeah. Uh, I, it turns out over time that's been um, an attribute I can bring to things that people welcome, this uh, tough conversations perch. Uh, I, you know, I didn't set out that way. I set out that way to add value in any way I can and just watch people receive me and learn from it. Um, and so uh, a couple of different approaches to that question about tough conversations as a board member or as a fund advisor. Um, you know, when you're, when you're entrusted that way, when, when people who've put their lives on the line as founders and, and executives or, or capital uh, that means a lot to them. When, when, when they trust you to join that table, you, you really got to understand the trust and faith they've played in you and you've got to be able to offer it back. And so quite often, the trust they want, the, trust, the, the, the return on that investment and trust they want is they want to be able to remove from their day the tensions of difficult conversations and, and see if they can be led, not run, but led by someone else. Because it's useful to have a third party there to minimize tensions. We all work better when it's not personal. You know, like in Agatha, it's not, it's, it's not personal, it's business, right? Or uh, uh, other movies. But, so that's one. I keep in mind that this is a trust that I've been given to do this. It's not just, uh, I've got, and I have to treat it as such. I have to have a, an approach to this conversation about difficult conversations. And so, First thing I do and think about is impact and impact framing 
and framing impact in precise, agreed-upon ways that we can define, align, and execute together, and an impact framing roadmap, and a methodology around impact, and and an approach to it. Because if we can create tools, visual tools that give expression to priority and impact over time, all of a sudden, you and I, Christian, have a third party at our difficult conversation, and that is the roadmap we agreed to. It's not me being difficult with you or you being difficult with me. It's the two of us looking at this other thing, the impact we said we were going to pursue, the roadmap that defined it, and we can we can invest our anxiety and tension in that thing first, and then and then allow our conversation to flower from there. So it's not threatening one on one unless it needs to be. <laughs> uh, so a structure. So understand it as a trust when you're someone like me that you've you've been trusted to do something. You need to have an approach. For me, impact, impact framing, methodology, that's all a structured approach to all of these things. And the third thing is I try to be a good and engaging high energy source for this conversation so people don't dread it. Like when they see me calling, do they want to pick up the phone or not? I think about that a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and so um, I try to balance that third part in also, make sure I'm um, appealing in not superficial ways, but welcome to have these conversations so that people pick up the phone or respond to the text, whatever, quickly. It's so funny you're mentioning that. I love that third point where it's like, hey, does this person even want to you know, engage with me? Because you know, what, what kind of taste am I leaving with them where they want to or they don't, right? They're like, oh, Rob, right. this is awesome, right? Also, right. the second point, I love in regards to that conversation uh, where it's like, it's um, it's like that thing over there. You, we may failed at the project, but I still see founder that you're still good. You're still rock and rolling. I see that. But what 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 is our solution for that project that failed, et cetera, et cetera? I want to ask um, when you're when you're when you're walking through that process, that methodology a little bit. Um, I'm always intrigued. It's really dependent upon that person. So, for example, if I'm going to talk to a sales guy, like I I, I had a business and. I would talk to my sales guy to motivate him differently than I would talk to my customer service rep. And the reason why is because their personality was different. Customer service, I would be a little bit more kind of soft, relaxed. Hey, I noticed you didn't get this project done. What can we do about this? And my sales guy, I would like kind of harsh, kind of write direct to him because I knew that he could take it. And he was like one of those individuals that almost fuel their fire by doing that, right? Hey, man. You're you're not doing so good at this week. What's going on? You you know you're not you know I, I know there's more inside you, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious, Rob, because I, I'm I'm a big believer in deploying the right, and I love your what you mentioned approach, effectively. What is what is my goal with having this conversation? So, Rob, when you're when you are in that situation, let's dive a little bit deeper in that. Do you ever come in and deploy certain emotions or certain approaches? To say, hey, all I really did was try to motivate them, and maybe they get a little frustrated, a little pissed off at you for a little while, but they know, you know, that that's gonna, you know, pivot them to to really explode. Yeah, um, let's unpack that a little bit, uh, and and let me try to be good respondent by making sure I put it in the context I know versus others. So, so yes, you we all have to understand the people we're communicating with in order to be effective with them. And yes, we have to understand their roles so we can help model the kind of behaviors that their roles require. Your examples were perfect examples for how a CEO needs to think about, you know, say difficult conversations with a team. For me, I had that experience for 10, 12 years um, and I'm still in recovery from how hard it was, right? Like, my name's Rob. I was a CEO. I've been in recovery for 23 years, you know, because that level of demand of an individual, I found intoxicating and brutal to know how to do it as a CEO. And it was amongst the reasons of self-realization. Maybe realize, you know what? I've had this job a couple of times. I never set out to get it. I don't like it. And there's parts about it that bewilder that. The, the thing out of me, <laughs> you know, just so, so I gravitated towards board roles and fund board roles where it's a little different in terms of the individuals because the C I'm, I'm working with a CEO typically and other investors, or I'm working with general partners at a fund. And so they sort of arrive at that point with, 
um, a different perspective on the kind of motivations they want from others around their table and what they need. It's quite distinct from what a CEO does with an exec team versus what you do on a board. So I just wanted to clarify that. But even with that, yes, you've got to understand the personality types. You've got to understand them. And for me personally, my, my business life doesn't work unless I'm being invited to add value. And so among the things I need to do is personally to make this work, I need to be high impact and low overhead. And if, and if I'm bringing interpersonal overhead to a situation, they're not going to invite me. They're not, you know, I, I'm not providing value or I have to provide so much value that it's worth the overhead. <laughs> and that's, that's a tough equation. And so I may have over answered your question. This is like a therapy session, Christian. I, I should be paying you for, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, but your, your, your point is, yes, you've got to think about situation-specific and people-specific feedback. Uh, you owe it to them. You owe it to yourself. Um, that's always true. But it has different flavors, different kinds of layers of company and, and fun dynamics. Uh, I over-answered that one, I'm sure. Sorry. No, Rob, that makes perfect sense. Because <laughs> you did, you know, you're good because it, it brought context to each kind of different uh, you know, vertical that you're in, right? Because obviously with a board, you're going to be slightly different versus advisory versus obviously direct to, uh, you know, CE, CEO positioning and, and kind of dripping that down. So I definitely understand. I appreciate you explaining that. When you're, um, I want to pivot a little bit further into this, okay? So outside of your investment thesis in regards to intuition, right? And instincts, right? Relying on that. Um, because we, we talked a little bit about that, that you rely on that quite a bit. What else do you look for? Because you are very industry agnostic. You, you're, uh, you're kind of gravitating uh, much more toward impact and sustainability, like I mentioned we're going to be talking about here shortly. But when you're looking at a, a project, a company, um, we talked offline a little bit in regards to like you're kind of stage agnostic as well as you know industry agnostic, which is really cool. So help me understand mm -hmm. how Rob looks at a company and says, okay, this is where I want to take my energy, my time, and my resources and deploy them toward this company. Yeah, well, we, we all have business models we need to fulfill. And um, when I launched myself on the investor side, um, I realized for me personally, I wanted, I wanted an environment where my meetings with my LPs were very easy. So the only way to do that is if you're your own LP. <laughs> and and so, so that's great, but you know, it comes with limitations, right? Um, it comes a limitation of, of not having a team to work with if you're not careful. And then you could, you know, fall victim of, of your own limitations. It, it, it comes with limitations and challenges around deal flow. I mean, just, in a, you know, we all have business models we need to fulfill as investors. So for me personally, the first thing I had to figure out was how to get deal flow like everybody else within the constructs of what I created because that's what I wanted to create for myself. That was my business I wanted to create. So getting invited as a board member or fund advisor is everything. And um, without that invitation, I don't get to see things that bright investors are seeing systematically. And so while I rely on intuition, I try to reserve it for the few moments where I have to deploy it. And so it started as a defensive thing. I had never been an investor before. I had run a couple of companies. After I ran the third one, I was shocked to discover there was a fourth, fifth, and sixth company out there. I mean, I just, you know, and so as a defense mechanism, I just wanted to tuck in behind others who had track records of success and, and, and see what they're seeing and learn what they're seeing. And then as a favor, ask them, you know, to round down to the nearest, you know, $10,000 or $50,000 or $100,000, whatever it turns out to be, and squeeze me in, you know, and, and, and they're always willing to do that if you're adding value and you're contributing. So at first, the answer to your question became, or what I look for, became really opportunistic based on who I was partnered with as a board member or an advisor, and I would just run to see what they were seeing. I love that. When, what I know about myself is I'm a great learner. I'm a great student. I am active and engaged in learning new stuff rapidly. And in the process of me having that pace, I'm adding value. So being eclectic with my own capital has not been a, a, a drawback. My LPs don't mind, but it also makes me a good partner at different things. So stage agnostic is a strategic statement that I've backed into <laughs> because I really chicken 
and cowardly about what I think I know, and I love learning from others, and if they have a good record and they're framing it up and they've done their due diligence and I know them well and I'm adding value to them, I trust a lot of that. And then, and then, when my capital is there and my instinct for the situation says go for it, I go for it. So this is interesting. It's you. You really have the characteristic of humility, right? You know what you don't know, and you you don't know what you don't know, right? And I think that's I appreciate that big time because you see other individuals that are you know that been there, done that, and what your investment thesis is like. Well, let me just align myself with them, learn from them, collapse time frames. So instead of using your own capital to basically learn and, and hit your head against the wall, you're basically you know having someone as the as the base guard to help you learn, help you understand, but also you your, your likeliness of of seeing a better success is much higher because these investors have been in the game a lot longer or whatever that is. And then as well as like you mentioned, then there comes to the founder and the kind of the KPIs as well as the, the instincts of, of um, uh, what we discussed as well. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Um, and, and go ahead. Just a couple of things on humility. Um, so you do this long enough. It's a well-earned humility, right? But also you can't, so for me to be invited into things, there's a number of things I need to do. Among them is being the best student at the table. I'll, I'll race my co-investors and CEOs to know more than they know about what they do every day. It rarely occurs, but they know I'm on the hunt. I bring that up because it's an attribute I like in myself. It's an attribute I know is valuable to others. And if you want to be a great student, Humility is step one, right? So it's not an accident that we're discussing humility. I've, I've earned humility <laughs> and I've purposely deployed it and try to cultivate it in myself as a, as a chief mechanism for being a great student, which is useful and valuable to everybody I get to work with. So valuable. So valuable. I, I love that. Yeah. You earned humility. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Thanks for sharing. Rob, let's talk a little bit about impact and sustainability. Um, I personally, I love this one because I am a big hardcore capitalist, and I really don't think a lot of the big big problems in the world are going to be, you know, solved by governments and bureaucratic, you know, systems. It's going to be solved by the entrepreneur. It's going to be solved by the business owner of some sort, right? Those that are want to go out there and just, you know. Uh, see a problem and they solve it, right? Through capitalistic means. Rob, when you're looking at these things, I know you're very passionate about it as well. I want to talk a little bit about like, first of all, that pivot in your own life where you're like, you know what? This is my next 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 fire behind my, my, my back, you know, that I want to full throttle with this. Um, what, what, tell, us, tell us the story behind that, man. Sure. Um, well, again, uh, this is, this is great therapy. You are requiring me to learn about myself. But so number one, I have always focused on impact. Now, impact doesn't have to translate to climate and sustainability impact. But I've always been driven as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, as an investor around impact as a definable thing, measurable, pursuable, and distinct from KPIs and OKRs and all the billions of other things that people add to this conversation. The summary I'll bring to that is competing, competing well is necessary but not sufficient. You got to win or you lose, right? Winning and losing is impact. Everything else is about my competitive heart rate and how I measure it. Vital, but only necessary, not sufficient. Impact is distinct. So I've always had this ability to think about impact regardless of the focus of the activity. Climate and sustainability um, has become how I want to define the next third of my career. Uh, and I'm hopeful that third lasts for another 40 years, right? Uh, but I'm, I'm, and there are a number of reasons why I'm doing that. One, uh, I've been massively rejuvenated with respect to climate sustainability in recent years. I'm a clean tech 1.0 survivor. Um, I left that experience really disheartened. Not because I lost money, I've made and lost money, but because the behaviors of companies and markets were so poor, it just made me despair coming out of that experience that we would ever see traction 
by entrepreneurs and businesses and companies to address climate sustainability opportunities and challenges. I really left despairing of that. The closest thing I can describe from some of that experience back then, it was as it, a lot of it was the worst of what we're seeing in, in Bitcoin now. Super smart people doing super smart things, but somehow got the memo that the way they needed to deploy themselves best was through scam and fraud and making money from their investors instead of with their investors. And, and, and you end up nowhere and everything gets hurt. And, um, but in the last several years, I've been massively rejuvenated uh, for a number of reasons. I've been rejuvenated by kids who aren't taking this shit anymore and refuse. And I love it. I've been massively rejuvenated by uh, this marvelous opportunity I've had to become a board member in residence for Mach 49. Boards and funds. Mach 49 is a, is, a, is a fantastic growth incubator for large scale enterprises, global firms. And, and they're, they're uh, in, the, in the words of our founder in a great book she wrote, trying to learn how to unleash the unicorn within, right? And, and, and my part of that is to be the board person I've always been. But what I've noticed in the couple of years I've been doing that is um, the climate and sustainability focus, intentionality and purpose by some of the world's largest entities has been compelling. I can't believe it. I have to remind myself not to be cranky that it's decades late. But it's here, it's here now, and, and it means a lot. And so that's another, this rejuvenation is another reason why I'm focused on climate stability. The last reason is pure greed. There are no growth and financial opportunities bigger, better, brassier, sassier, and, and, and more compelling than climate sustainability growth initiatives now. They're in the money. They're here today. You don't have, there's not a single, and there's not a single market activity you can define that is bigger and more certain long and short term than climate sustainability growth initiatives. And so my animal instincts, capitalistic instincts are, are on fire because there's a false binary that has always existed in climate sustainability. And that is this stupid question. Are you making money or saving the planet? The answer to that is yes. And every other answer is forced on you by ignorant people, imbeciles, or bad-intentioned actors. There's enormous power in understanding the yes. And the growth initiatives in climate sustainability are compelling. They're dramatic. I can't imagine wanting to spend time on anything else from a pure capitalist perspective and as a citizen of the planet perspective. They all come together. It's just, uh, can't imagine doing anything more with my life than focusing on that. And I love that differentiation of what you said. Does it does it make money or does it make an impact? It's both, right? And does it help climate change, right? It's both. It's saying, you know what? This is a vehicle that can help establish both. And I love what you're saying also in regards to this industry. I am seeing, I, I've, I've seen some things come across my table specifically that are like, wow, this, this is actually real. They're actually profitable and doing this is incredible. I look at it. Um, it was like 1993, 1995 when the dot-com era was kind of establishing. It's like the same kind of foundation that's happening. It's like the exciting billion-dollar companies that are going to really you know, build fruition out of that. I mean the Amazons, the Googles, the Yahoos, these, these, uh, Microsofts, the Apples. So it's going to be interesting to see but also making an impact in the right, the right thing. Rob, let's dive into a little bit further in regards to impact and sustainability. So you kind of shared a little bit of your thesis, what that looks like. What are you seeing? You're on the forefront. You probably have seen some, um, you know, deal flow come across your table. You know, I do understand that sometimes the timeline for these companies, because it's kind of heavy, heavy capital, some of the infrastructure, depending upon what project, the infrastructure is not established yet. So there's, it's kind of heavy uh, capital intensive a little bit to build out the infrastructure, build out that kind of awareness. But then once they turn and, and go to market and go to, you know, go to strategy, uh, um, you know, proof of proof of concept, boom, they're really, you know, scaling. So Rob, just give us a few things that you're seeing right now. Maybe they're early stage, maybe they're kind of mid stage, what that looks like. Yeah, or later stage. So the so climate and sustainability opportunities present themselves throughout the investment landscape. And and for me, the the good and the bad of my treehouse capital is I get to uh, be open minded about where I go. When it works, I'm open-minded. When it doesn't work, I'm eclectic. <laughs> and so 
you know, if, if you just sort of run through um, what's common and appealing about climate, climate and sustainability opportunities, number one, knowing that things have materially and significantly changed is, is, a, is a great entrepreneurial investor insight to have. And if you're spending your time arguing about, you know, ESG is not this or could be that or is meant to, you're wasting your time because you're spending your time with people at the back of the bus when there's plenty of people at the front of that bus that you want to spend time with. And so as an investor and entrepreneur of any type, just focus on the best of intentions because there's the people behind you are going to lose. Just, just make sure you're not, just make sure you're not behind yourself. You know? And then, um, you know, you got to think through a lot of things. The other, I think, insight that's significant here is the climate and sustainability opportunities that are in front of us right now are as much or more about business model innovation as they are about tech. Now, there is massive tech investment and deployment that must happen that we're all dependent upon. Uh, I'll go all the way out to Fusion, and, and, and no one was more giddy than me over Fusion's Kitty Hawk moment a few weeks back, where for a millisecond it was net gain on a reaction. People forget that the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, that flight, that first flight, that first magnificent flight took all of 12 seconds. 12 seconds changed the world, so the millisecond of you know, Fusion is not to be scoffed at, it's to be embraced. That said, the vast majority of, of investment opportunities, entrepreneurial, venture, public, are, are about business model innovation. Because the tech needed to address vast swaths of net zero and nature positive opportunities, those are distinct things. When we talk about climate sustainability, there's net zero, there's nature positive, they're distinct. But in any event, the vast array of opportunity set there is business model innovation. That's the best kind of innovation to invest in. But the, but the, the language has become, well, it's climate tech. You know, I, 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 I think the other thing I would encourage you to do, one, don't spend time in the back of the bus. Only the losers sit back there. Two, it's not only a tech challenge and opportunity. And if you're built for tech challenge and opportunity, great, because there are vast arrays of terrific work that needs to get done. And that's a different capital requirement, different universe. But there's massive amounts of business model innovation to invest in and create. And then last, if it's tech, well, you better know the science, the timeframes, and the people involved that are going to sustain their focus on these things through the reality of a tech deployment cycle that's highly complex, highly systems dependent, and needs time and capital to deploy. I, I hope that was responsive to your question. Um, it was a it complex was. question. It was, and I appreciate unpacking that tremendously. And let's kind of, you know, go down this path a little bit further. So when you're seeing this, um, and I love what you said, climate tech, um, could you maybe give us a, an example of a, of a deal that you're, you're seeing? Maybe you don't have to mention their name or their, their how much they're raising, but maybe just the concept of what this will do once this is established, it goes to market, and the impact that it will have. I'd love to just kind of, you know, help us understand sure. that a little bit further. On the climate tech side or on climate sustainability broadly? Um, because I'm climate, seeing things. Climate tech for now, yeah. 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 So, among, so among the areas um, that compel me most is um, having a systems view of food and agriculture. And so if you start with a net zero lens only, on food and ag, for an example. You know, you very quickly get to meat and you very quickly get to cows and you very quickly get to methane. And with a net zero lens, you come to great ideas like feeding cows more garlic so they burp less methane. And it's a great idea. We should do it. But it doesn't get you to the systems opportunities that nature positive gets you to. Nature positive being biodiversity, land use, water, emerging complements to understanding net zero and climate sustainability. And that gets you to precision fermentation of protein in a lab. 
And then you get to people's resistance about protein in a lab and you got to frame it for them and say, well, really? Right now, your protein is coming from inefficient machines that bleed, that we torture to produce very small increments of, pro of efficient protein for the, for the energy consumed, the land use consumed, the water consumed. This is a terrible industrial process. When you frame it that way, all of a sudden you, you know this precision fermentation in a lab of protein sounds pretty darn good. It sounds efficient, land use. Other. So I'm, I'm intrigued by systems opportunity on the tech side and food is an example. Um, I've yet to make an investment in that area. I've been advising and looking and evaluating from a distance. The capital required is, is out of my class as an investor. So I've got to find the right combination for me personally where I can be invited to join in and then I can squeeze myself in as an investor. Um, and I would say that's true for me in all the tech arenas. The tech arenas, the climate sustainability tech opportunities for the moment are difficult for me as an individual with individual capital because they require quite a lot of capital. Uh, uh, and, I'm, and I'm happy to do the duration, but I don't have that capital available. And so I need to find boards and other things where I can add value and then I can tuck myself into those things. Um, that's just a top of the mind reflection on your question about the tech part of climate sustainability investment well, opportunity. What what I find so interesting, Rob, is I was listening to Chamath and you kind of – the same thing with you – know, he, he was mentioning something um, where it was like the ener uh, energy infrastructure in the US and it's just so outdated. The energy companies are incentivized to do basically the wrong thing when the reality is if we just adjust a few things, we can actually – uh, the cost per energy unit is just extremely low, but the costs are, are – we, we see our utility bill just keep going up, and mainly it's because we have to pay for the infrastructure. And what you're basically mentioning there, Rob, which I appreciate you bringing up, is saying, hey, you know what? We see all these ineffective things that are going on, and there's ways to really make it optimized. Just like you mentioned, there's those proteins. We're already creating it. It's just more, less effective for really all this energy, time, effort, resources deployed and, and really – not used effectively for something relatively small. The output is really small. So if we can increase the output and decrease the input, doesn't that make sense? It's like, well, yeah. And so that's basically that whole that whole uh, impact side of things. And you're investing yeah. to infrastructure. Now, like you mentioned, I do understand in regard. I've heard that numerous times where it's it's very capital intensive. It does require some institutional investors a little bit uh, because they have to deploy some capital to be able to build the infrastructure. Rob, when you're looking at the timeline of this, I think we're seeing this as early adopters. I think you're seeing this at the forefront. We're seeing a little bit more where it's hitting kind of mainstream. But what are you noticing? You're on the forefront of this and, and investing it actively. Are you seeing it as kind of just early stages thus far with a lot of these opportunities? Or have you seen a lot of them that are like, hey, they're, make, they're making strides? Uh, maybe I found one or two thus far through, through my network. But I'd love to get yeah. your response, Rob. Well, let me first answer just to remind us of my limitations of view consistent with my business model so I don't try to over-answer your question. Um, and I appreciate you mentioning me in the same breath as Chemeth. That was good. <laughs> uh, his, his capital available is far in excess of mine, so he's going to you know, see and notice and be able to do different things than me. But um, for me, the, the most significant traction I'm seeing is coming from large-scale global enterprises who are creating impactful new ventures that I get to help with as a board member residence for Mach 49. And so in terms of rubber hitting the road and what I'm seeing that's, you know, turning the crank now, I'm seeing enormous growth initiative venture investing, venture building initiative by large-scale global firms in these areas that, that, as I said, has rejuvenated me and um, is a bit under the radar of many, but I'm seeing them make differentiated things happen in ways that are really compelling. And, and so most of the significant uh, achievement against Milestone I'm seeing is coming from that kind of force. The, the startup universe um, I have yet to find my way into. So some of my limitations in these areas, some of my limitations born of what I'm seeing. Uh, and that's just how my model works, right? Um, but I'm seeing enormous uh, creativity and productivity from vast universes of investors and startups that are doing incredible things, bringing business model innovation to tech issues. For instance, you know, Stripe and others associated with these efforts have taken 
the business model of advanced market purchase from what was vitally needed in the AIDS crisis and, and drug development by putting advanced market purchases out there for entrepreneurs to go seize, right? Not to determine winners and losers, but to say, I will buy X anytime it hits my Y criteria. And so the business model innovation of advanced market purchase for carbon removal has been you know, massively rejuvenating, extremely compelling. And that was a relatively small dollar ecosystem at the start. I mean, a re very small dollar ecosystem. But because it was committed to transparency, science-based goals, because, because carbon offsets are such a terrible backwater of bullshit, scam, and fraud, they had to create a, a different way for high-quality initiatives, startup initiatives, to meet buyers and did so. Um, so I'm seeing enormous creativity and traction around business models and ecosystems of startups and ecosystems of startup investors. Um, I'm eagerly chasing all that, raising my hand to see if I can get invited so I could throw my few bucks in behind all those people. Um, and so I just wanted to make sure I responded to your question by what I know at Treehouse, which is a smaller view uh, than perhaps other investors uh, might be able to bring to that question. No, and... Uh you're very humble, and I really appreciate that. And you downplay your your influence, and and obviously your deal flow, and what you're actively involved, which I really appreciate. But I do want to emphasize that I, I appreciate that perspective on the way you look at things and the way you structure things, because I think it's very valid still. Because at the end of the day, it's something Warren Buffett always says: "You're stupid in the small things; you're stupid in the big things." And the reality is, you may or may not be, you know, as as deploy capital with like Chamath, but you still deploy capital, and you're obviously very right. impact in your own right. So I think that's really awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. And, I, and a part of the equation I'd like to bring here is um, certain classes of investor. We've talked about some of the venture investors that are doing pioneering work here, but certain classes of public investor are so far ahead of their portfolio companies, it'll make you cry because there's such a gap between CEO willpower and guts and what their investors are demanding of them that that gap is going to have to be addressed. I, I see plenty of CEOs saying, well, my investors won't like this and my investors won't like that. They're making excuses for their lack of willpower to commit to climate sustainability growth initiatives, which are in the money now. In the money now, and they're not investing. And you're seeing wide array of really brilliant investors who I have access to on that side of my life. The public investor, the hedge fund investor, the, some sovereign wealth stuff. They are putting demands together that superficially get, you know, argued about is ESG this and ESG that. They're missing, that, that whole argument is missing the point. They are looking for impact because that group of investors, just go a little deeper, they've seen enormous value from focusing on risk assessment. It's what public investors do. And so it's been very natural to them to think about risk assessment, like ESG. So if we look at the, the G part, an array of brilliant systematic short sellers have always looked to things like scandals that might be surfacing through Glassdoor publicly created information. And so they've always, they've been ESG investors all their life, right? They, they haven't called it that, but they've always looked to these impact criteria as risk models, risk assessment models. But what's happening now is they're saying, okay, got that, check. I can now translate risk assessment to impact and growth potential. Show me who is capitalizing on the energy transition. Show me who is actually going to make money at doing this. Uh, show me who's going to capitalize on the fact that, you know, Texas of all places is about to become the leading consumer of renewable energy in, in the United States pretty quickly, right? Who's going to capitalize on that? What has to happen to transmission? And no matter how much money you have as an individual investor, that's big company investing and big investor investing but those are enormous opportunities i'm i'm seeing quite a lot of traction on the public investing side around these topics that i just want to bring this conversation of vc and startup because the ecosystem in which climate sustainability finds itself in has enormous enormous tailwinds and i think entrepreneurs at the startup level need to tap into that energy and understand that it's there because ultimately that's that's future generations of investors for what they're creating right and they're and they're demanding a lot now and demanding a lot more from their public companies than I'm seeing venture capital demand from its portfolio 
other than climate stimulating investors who get it and are driving. So you're seeing a massive transformation in the right direction and kind of hitting mainstream because you're already seeing these large corporate which have those big buckets of money and a lot of those – and it's, it's really making uh, headway and like you mentioned, tailwind. That's so exciting to see that. I was not aware of that. So I appreciate you bringing that to our audience and making sure that don't lose hope, right? <laughs> there are people out there that are really kicking butt and there is a lot of tailwind. We may not see it in the news all the time, but that's the reason why people like Rob, he's on the forefront of this and being able <laughs> share that with our with our audience rob i really appreciate you being on here man just sharing your story your journey your your pivot points those those failures but those amazing opportunities the things that you learn the paradigms the the principles that you've established to to make sure that you are aligned and really follow you know follow along with your instinct or your intuition uh and and even the you know the kpis of course and all that fun stuff but rob i really appreciate it and also the passion that you've had with you know the impact and sustainability for those that want to maybe just learn a little bit more, follow you, maybe ask a little bit more questions or maybe be part of what you've got going on. Rob, how do they reach out to you, my man? Oh, great question. And thank you for inviting me. As we said, when we talked before this, I learn a lot from spending this time with someone like you asking me things. It makes me think and define my thinking. So I'm grateful. Um, I'm hoping others got value from it too. I'm a very open, easy to access person. Um, so treehousecapital.com is where I maintain sort of a, a site that has some background. Um, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm very chatty and opinionated on Twitter, uh, including my hostility to the sociopath who currently owns Twitter. Um, and so uh, you can find me in all sorts of places uh, and all sorts of ways. I'm open to people. I love helping entrepreneurs. I remember needing help. I need to help entrepreneurs. I love doing it and my business depends on it because if I'm adding value to entrepreneurs, eventually that value added turns to my favor somehow. Indirectly because I learn, directly because I join a board or invest, but there, there is no lack of desire on my part to be helpful to an entrepreneur. It is just in me. So reach out to me in all those ways or any other way you can and I'll, I'll do my best to respond and be useful to you. Awesome, guys. Those links will be in the description as always, so make sure you stop what you're doing and make sure you get access and follow him. And just engage because, again, you know, like attracts like. And to be able to you know, pivot, move, and, and, and really make that impact, follow people that are already making that impact just like Rob is doing. So, Rob, again, I really appreciate you being on here. Guys, that is the founder of Treehouse Capital, my friend, the one and only Rob. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis Podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can.